Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Sandeep Roy Show on Express Audio. The Sandeep Roy Show. Most of us think that cooking is all about diligently following a recipe. And all those recipe videos that pop up on social media only reinforce that idea. One tablespoon of this, 10 grams of that. But of course, we all grew up in households where cooking was more about a pinch of this and a bit of that. We often confuse the science of cooking with measurements. But the question we should be asking is really, why and not how much? Krish Ashok, who describes himself as someone who is not a chef but cooks daily, has become hugely popular on social media as the man who demystifies the science behind the way we cook or explains the science behind those little kitchen hacks our mothers and grandmothers have, like throwing in a tea bag while boiling the chana and busting myths like using two cups of water for every one cup of rice. He's the author of Masala Lab, The Science of Indian Cooking. This week, Krish Ashok breaks down a standard Indian meal of rice, dal, sabzi and chicken curry and explains the myths and misconceptions that we have while cooking. Krish Ashok, welcome to the show. Hey, absolute pleasure. You begin Masala Lab with this story about your grandmother and asking her for recipes. And I actually wanted you to tell listeners that story because I think many people will relate to it. So, I, I mean, I was like many Indians, you know, on the cusp of, uh, you know, obviously joined IT and going abroad back in the day. And obviously recognizing that, well, I have to learn to cook because, you know, eating pizzas and burgers is not sustainable. And so that was the time I got seriously into cooking and went to every good uh, cook in the family, right? All the elderly aunties and grand aunts and grandmothers and so on. And asked them for, let me note down recipes. And it struck me that many of these people didn't think in terms of recipes, right? And they kind of struck me back then, even in my 20s. For them, it was a set of heuristics. For them, dal was not a recipe, but dal was a pattern. And they could make it with any dal, any kind of spices, any kind of oil, and it kind of came together, right? So that metamodel kind of thinking, and it struck me that I would painstakingly ask her how many teaspoons, how many, and she would just say, no, put as much as it feels right, or it smells right, or it looks right. And that was when, in a sense, the seed of the idea for Masala Lab that came much later was to say that, look, actual good cooks don't think in terms of recipes. They think in terms of these heuristics and metamodels. One of her dishes that I particularly love was this dosa-like thing called adai, which is not as common in a restaurant because it's very time-consuming. It has to be slow cooked, right? Only then you get that crispness and the softness inside. It's all dals and ground into a batter with spices and then it's laid out like a dosa. 
and uh, so I was like, like, what proportion of this dal? What proportion of that dal? How much spices? How many chilies? How much dania? And uh, I wrote down. He said, "What are you writing down?" I said, "I'm writing down all these ingredients." Then he said, "No, write down one more uh, ingredient. Patience." So that you get that right, you can approximate all the rest. That story reminded me when I went to America as a student. I also asked my mother the same thing. You know, how will I know when my rice is down? I had a little notebook where she wrote down. I think it started with boiling an egg. but then years later i'm doing a story for american public radio on uh, indian home cooks who had the side business catering to homesick indian techies in silicon valley who didn't know how to yeah, cook yeah, yeah. and i tell that story about coming to america myself and stuff and they said oh oh you must include a recipe that your mother gave you at that time so i did and then they wouldn't put it up on their website because they said it's too imprecise by american standards because it's all <laughs> A pinch exactly, of yeah. this, a little bit of that, and so they said, "But can you go back to your mother and ask for more precise teaspoon, tablespoon type measurements?" And then my mother said, "It won't be my recipe anymore. I don't know what to tell you." Imprecision is part of the recipe, right? I think there's a larger Western, Eastern metaphor here somewhere, right? In the sense of impreciseness here. I mean, I, to be fair, I think you know even cookbooks, right? Given that cookbooks really catered to a very tiny fraction of the audience historically, right? Given in literacy and 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 so on. YouTube again, essentially is is in a sense that uh, people who are just simply saying. you just put this much roughly approximately and all of that those kind of videos didn't do well algorithmically and then people learned that oh this is how i have to do it i have to invent precision actually i wouldn't be very surprised if you actually follow the precise instructions that many cooks actually give you you may not end up with something that you like and it's almost as if i think you have to somehow use that muscle memory of i like it this spicy I like the note of the cinnamon a bit more than other people do, so I'll add a little bit more. I'll add it later in the cooking process and so on. So it's those heuristics that actually ultimately sort of make for what is somebody's recipe, right? The actual precision is not somebody's recipe. It's the act of them actually making it and using all of their tacit wisdom and having done it like a thousand times before. That's what actually makes the entire thing. You told the story about your grandmother, but how did you come to the realization that what you say in the book is that understanding basic food science will make you a significantly better cook? I mean, it seems obvious. Yes. But as you know, we pretty much think of cooking as following steps in a recipe blindly. But they see cooking as following steps in a recipe is actually not the default view at all, right? So they look at the wider, you know, billions of people in India. Half of that population effectively is the one doing most of the cooking. It's the women, and the way they cook is not through by following recipes. It's by apprenticeship. Well, while you're a young girl, learning, you're observing your mother and later mother-in-law, you know, grandmother, and you're sort of just by practice and you pick up those heuristics, right? So I think the illusion that I think we are under often under is that it's not that. we somehow nobody realized that food science was important to cooking it is just that we've always seen cooking as something that women in our families do and we're not particularly keen on turning that into an intellectual exercise hey because it's something women do when you spend time actually paying attention and observing them while they're actually cooking it is as much like a chemical engineer at work in a lab of course they're not publishing they're not using that language of science but every single one of the heuristics about when is rice getting cooked how to ensure that your vegetables are not browning as you cut them so you dunk them into water they may not be able to tell you it's about oxygen and polyphenol oxidase but you see the practical heuristic wisdom by practice right so this is sort of like you know what i say is the difference between an engineer and a mechanic See, an engineer is someone who doesn't actually look at the machine or the car at all he's actually looking at only diagrams he has knows the theory he knows newton's laws he knows thermodynamics 
he knows all of that he knows stuff all the stuff on paper he understands the blueprint right but the mechanic is the person who's actually has the practical knowledge of how the machine actually works and in that sense it's just that we've somehow do not we undervalue the knowledge of the mechanic and we overvalue the value of the engineer and i think that we've done the same thing with cooking you know it's like how we look down on home science you know when it started school right oh home science is something that kids who cannot understand mathematics do and so on without realizing that home science was actually invented by a bunch of women economists in the turn of the 20th century who literally contributed so much to economics because the idea of home science was essentially how do i apply these principles of optimization to manage a home kitchen without wastage things are spoiling how do i manage a budget that i'm given to run a large household and so on many of those ideas ended up actually becoming serious economics ideas and and the men who took credit for it did not credit back those women that's actually the fascinating radio lab podcast episode about how home science actually contributed to that and i think it's the same thing right so in that sense for me masala lab was like no i have not invented anything here like if you listen to your grandmother and your mother closely enough and you observe it and you spend time in the kitchen being an apprentice really just immersing yourself in it and you kind of recognize that these heuristics are all simple scientific heuristics right in it is basically adding water is on rice extra water for rice is to account for evaporation it's not about one whistle two whistle one is to two it's not about ratios it's about accounting for evaporation that's why my mother would my grandmother would never actually say one cup rice two cups no water she would put the rice she knew how much rice she put and she would visually look at the pot and say yeah this is how much extra water i need because i know this much is going to evaporate but is there something our mothers and grandmothers were doing wrong and or at least it doesn't work in a modern kitchen anymore Oh yeah yeah absolutely there are many i think that goes away from science and it kind of gets into i think the culture and the nature of knowledge and the nature of things like ritualization and tradition and especially when cooking and food are so closely tied to cultural identity what then happens is that beyond just the practical aspect of turning ingredients into food other things creep up that tend to have a longer shelf life while not being based on anything practical innate ideas about something's more being more superior and indian ideas about non veg being impure and uh, other kinds of ideas about uh, you know hot and cold foods right like in ayurveda and about certain foods not coming into contact with each other which again as i said in a pre refrigeration area many of them would have been simple protocols to avoid spoilage but again you have refrigeration you are live in a far far more hygienic less microbe filled environments now in your modern homes and so on so interesting thing is that while my book focuses on all the science part about the cooking my instagram is purely about pointing out that hey by the way all these other things that have crept up that's not scientific right you do this very cool thing in masala lab where you take something like cooking chana and you deconstruct it right and yes. i wanted to expand that a little bit and have you deconstruct a standard meal for us so let's say we are making rice dal some kind of mixed veggie sabzi and a basic chicken curry help us walk through the science and one more importantly some of the most common misconceptions and myths we have about these things so let's start with rice so let's start with rice right in india the rice is the centerpiece of the meal in the sense that it probably likely contributes to the larger imbalance and probably plays uh, some supporting role in the diabetes epidemic the centrality of carbs right so that is the first thing right so and people sometimes also overestimate the importance of the amount of rice you need to eat and and, and so on. so the common myths about rice first one is obviously how much water do you add to the rice to cook it's not a ratio thing when you are cooking for one person a small family you need one cup of rice two cups of water is fine for most vessels so the ratio method works but it doesn't scale so but if you're cooking for like large number of people then three cups of rice is not six cups of water so you do have to say then apply the evaporation method and so on 
a couple of other common misconceptions about you know raw rice versus parboiled rice so raw rice in general is largely devoid of all of the useful nutrients micronutrients it's just mostly just the starch right and historically i think you know even thousands of years ago we did figure out that a diet full of just raw rice not great and so people did parboil the rice so the act of parboiling actually gets the vitamin b and all of the other nutrients into the endosperm so that parboiled rice as your daily go to rice is probably a better choice now the other point is that people will say we should only eat brown rice and red rice and things like that couple of problems with that so most plants uh, both people don't realize are not in the business of saying please eat pea right and so they find mechanisms to make themselves less palatable and the outer covering is really what that is right the plants put a lot of investment into things that are phytates and oxalates and a bunch of other things that prevent you from digesting that the prevent a herbivore from digesting it right and so therefore this is why split dals and we'll get to dals anyway right are more digestible than whole dals people will say no no whole dals are healthy 25% of the indian population can't digest whole dals you'll forever be bloated and suffer from other consequences if you're only eating whole dals same thing with uh, like a diet entirely with brown rice not going to work for everyone so which is again you have to sort of mix and match the second thing is shelf life of uh, brown rice is also very poor because the bran has uh, fat and fat goes rancid with time right because it oxidizes the free fatty acids and so on because that's where you get rice bran oil from so historically you had to polish it to create something that can last you years in a pre refrigeration dehumidified environment and all that and the other thing is that see, rice in india grows regularly in soils because we have very poor regulation from industrial waste and all that there's a ton of arsenic in the soil and rice is particularly good at absorbing arsenic so again because of the indian habit of washing soaking and washing rice you are largely addressing that problem most of that arsenic is washed off right and your liver deals with the rest brown rice the, the outer part has a ton more arsenic so you also do not want to be consuming brown rice like all the time because again you are there's twice as much arsenic in brown rice as there is in white rice again washing addresses a fair amount of the problem not something to be worried about and so on so when we were kids like the big thing was in bengali we called it bhatel than which is that water that excess starchy water yes. that you throw and now people say now if you measure the water correctly you'll just get absorbed and you won't have that starchy water to throw so what's going on there see what happens is that there are many ways of cooking rice so if you just add the right amount of water and it's all absorbed it's one thing if you add excess water like sometimes when we cook par cook rice for biryani right you want to add excess water and then you will discard that water now in general that discarding method you're going to end up discarding 10 to 15% of the amylopectin starch the loose starch so in general that rice cooked in that excess water method will have 15% fewer calories right so there is that but but again i, I think people pay way they say no no this is how our ancient people did it and therefore it's better boss if it has fewer calories there's a good chance you'll probably eat more of that rice your body knows how much food it wants okay on the other hand the weird thing is that if you actually want to do this scientifically cook the rice refrigerate it and eat it the next day why what does that do so when what happens is that rice starch absorbs water and swells and that's what cooking of starch gelatinizing of starch and it becomes big etc once the cooking process is over and temperature comes back down to room temperature starch undergoes a process called retrogradation so what happens is that it reforms into crystal structures that is the stale chapati texture the very dry rice texture you get that's retrograded starch and it's generally hard to eat and you know, all chapati particularly hard to eat but rice is okay right i mean the one in the microwave and you're like you're good to go and so on now retrograded starch is harder to digest 
because your body has to spend more time to break down that back into sugars. Okay. And as a general rule, stuff that is harder to break down up to a point is healthier than stuff that is too easy to digest. Because particularly for carbs, because you don't want the sugar rush, the glucose rush into the blood. So if you're eating what is yesterday's rice or you know leftover rice uh, kept in the fridge and got back, it is pretty much fully retrograded starch. And that for people who are pre-diabetic or prone to diabetes and so on, the sugar rush into your blood will be slowed down by a fair degree, right? Indians have this, you must only eat fresh food. And here's a fantastic argument for not doing that, particularly when it comes to rice. So this is actually a better method than saying, I will use the excess washing method, right? That'll get rid of 15% of uh, the calories, yeah, but you'll probably eat a little bit more rice. On the other hand, you might eat the same amount of rice and you're pretty satiated because resistant starch satiates you sooner because it's harder to digest and it gives you a smaller sugar spike and it's a win-win in every uh, sort of uh, situation. Okay, we've got the rice. Now the dal. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yes. So the dal. Okay. So dal, we first have to remember that when grains, on the other hand, have co-evolved with human beings, because human beings essentially domesticated certain varieties of grass. You know, I often make this observation that if aliens arrive on planet Earth and want to find out which is the dominant species, don't be surprised if they walk up to a rice or a corn plant and attempt to establish communications because the grass is the single most important single species of living thing on the planet in that it has made humans so goddamn addicted to it that we are willing to wipe out entire forests, wipe out all biodiversity and only allow the rice genes to survive, right? And in that sense, right? So by the four of the five most widely grown agricultural crops are grasses. So that's basically rice, wheat, maize, which is corn and uh, sugar cane. Right? So all of these are uh, like grasses and then not to mention all millets. They're also grasses, right? So what do you think about millets right now and, and our year of the millets push? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. So so one is that obviously there's it's a very complex story, to be honest. And in fact, actually, Bengal has a pretty interesting side story in that entire thing as a result of the its tragedy with famines in, in the, the turn of the century, the rice crop regularly failing. And then, you know, people would starve to death when in reality, uh, people would historically have rely on millets that are very highly local. That's why you have so many millets. And millets actually, uh, they need a fraction of the water they need a fraction of the care. And I think they're very, very hardy crops in that sense. So they were always a backup. So rice was historically seen as the special occasion, rich person dish. Every day, poor people would sort of eat a local millet. And again, and because of the nature of how these are much, much smaller grains uh, than rice. So 
far far more resistant starch and also more proportion of protein and so on net i think a diet of millets actually is better than a diet of rice right but again qualification is that not everybody digests them very well they're not very particularly tasty either right i mean yeah, let's be honest right so gobindu bhog or a baspati i mean is is not something that you can get out of ragi or a oxtail or any of these other uh, millets right so but the interesting thing is that there are many factors here so one is that millets are not particularly high yield so as population grew you needed crops that were higher yield to get higher yield you need a culture of science and technology and experimentation far more than what farmers historically used to do by simple artificial selection over centuries right and again the caste system in india was also generally made any kind of intellectual endeavor in things like agriculture much harder to do right because you keep the person who's the farmer at the bottom of the pyramid and the british colonial policy to provide food security was that i can't provide you food security with billets i'll provide it with wheat and rice so the ration system the whole thing the public uh, distribution system was centered around rice and wheat and so on that changed the diet of a lot of people in india away from whatever billets they were eating locally to this and another factor particularly in bengal and bihar was the fact that the millet cultivation season used to clash with the opium cultivation uh, season right and the british were far more interested in growing opium so that they could buy tea from china back in the day so it is good that it is coming back as i said in general i think the more number of diverse things we eat I think the better it is definitely for the gut microbiome because millets have more fiber and are probably better for your gut up to a point again because I think if you don't digest it very well it's just going to be bad for you right so yeah so I think it's still okay to treat rice as a a primary staple while you know maybe doing weekday nights with millet or weekends and uh, or save rice for the weekend so as I said eat more different you know kinds of things right so that's the, rather than a try to say millets are the greatest thing on the planet and everyone must eat only millets i think is is impractical and again the yield so right now on a practical note if everyone switched to millets all the time there is no way india can grow enough millets to feed right? you would have literally have to import so getting back to dal right notoriously raw legumes are nearly impossible to digest in fact they are actually bad for you any kind of undercooked dal is pretty bad for you because it has so many anti nutrients and so many things that will upset your digestion right and obviously historically the idea of a dal was that because the legume plants essentially basically have a symbiotic relationship with bacteria and their roots that are able to fix atmospheric nitrogen so only way you can grow three rice crops is if you do rice dal rice dal there is no other way right is everywhere in the world right the mexicans would do corn and beans which is rajma in india we do rice and dal rice and chana rice and whatever else right so that was the only way to replenish the soil with nitrogen till of course fritz haber in the 20th century figured out a way to turn atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia and therefore fertilizers and of course now we have reached the point where half of the nitrogen atoms in your body came from the fertilizer that was used to grow the the food that you eat and the food that was eaten by the animals that you eat as well right so in that sense now we are completely reliant on fertilizers so people say no fertilizer are you kidding me you cannot grow enough to feed the planet so anyway so that aside legumes are like notoriously hard to digest they have very very hard seed coats and so on so they do require uh, cooking and here's what most people don't realize and i particularly find this a prevalent myth in north india that you must not pressure cook dals it destroys nutrients you must cook on an open pot remove the froth that comes because that is so it's weird how people will find some random scientific reasoning for some old belief right you must remove the froth because it is hard to digest used to be the logic that became ayurvedic influences are now like you must remove the froth because it is saponins and saponins will cause you indigestion and so on right now the interesting thing is that number one that froth is not saponins it's mostly loose starch loose protein some amino acids some saponins that's really just about it that small amount of saponins one is actually good for you so that's the best part second the second thing that a lot of the resistant starch in 
dals is indigestible unless you pressure cook it so pressure cooked dal gives you more nutrition than open pan cooked dal this is true of all dals more true for things like chana rajma black urad dal green moong and so on little bit less so for like split moong dal which is like the easiest to cook or masoor masoor which sort of cooks very easily and so on and maybe to some extent tour and all that but the moment you get to chana dal bengal gram anything that is you know a far more serious about telling you please don't eat me then you pressure cooker is what you need to you absolutely used to to get all of the nutrients you need right so this is a very common this thing and you don't have to worry about the froth and all of that adding salt when you cook tightens the uh, that's in yeah that's in when do you add the salt does it matter after it's completely boiled is that true for everything it's true for all dals again as i said there is no harm in adding so there are some reasons some chefs who will add the salt because they want the lentil or a legume to maintain its shape and not just completely smashed yes right but in general home situations you risk it being undercooked so you want to cook the dal and then add the salt and so on yeah so this is one and again if you want to save gas cylinder a pinch of baking soda will get like super creamy soft consistency particularly for chana rajma and so you are quite the advocate for baking soda <laughs> oh absolutely absolutely you need to have like you like this is the miracle soda from your kitchen right it can do everything from cook to clean exactly it is the molecule of sodium that we should be celebrating and not sodium chloride which is actually bad for your heart and so on So it's sodium bicarbonate that is the the actual uh, hero one it's just a sodium salt so it really doesn't do anything more than what sodium chloride does at that level the second thing is that you eat such a tiny amount right and it does so many things because of the fact that it is slightly acid and by the way and the food will taste bad because our tongues don't like alkaline things right baking soda in dal is a life in india a place with so much poverty and people being so conscious about cost of lpg fuel firewood and all of that right So if we just let people use a tiny pinch of baking soda you know how much money we will save as a country i won't be surprised country needs a baking soda policy if you want to reduce your reliance on imported fossil fuels i am not kidding right 30% of cook time reduced if you add a pinch of soda imagine how much lpg gas you can save right in fact i would actually say the government should say along with you know the subsidy and all of the whatever yojana they have for giving lpg they must give a packet of uh, baking soda and say one pinch with your dal all those billboards with the yojana about the cooking gas and then a small prime minister holding yes the prime minister holding a packet of baking soda that is yeah i mean and the fact that it will likely bring down your uh, gas bill right what is the hindi for baking soda we need that word otherwise it won't work we need a should desi word for it ha yeah we yeah we need i i don't know the hindi word <laughs> i do know that i think there is a alkaline sodium salt that is used in assamese cooking ha wo khar khar that is also something pretty close to baking soda i think in that sense yeah okay and at the end of the dal the tarka or chok i remember reading a new york times article sometime back which turned it into this enormous mystical indian yes. tradition <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Uh, but what is the science behind what we are doing there see in fact i often say that the the chok or the tarka is pretty much sort of like the foundational if somebody would ask you what defines subcontinental cooking it's basically chonk is basically tarka right this is idea that because spice flavors are fat soluble and not water soluble idea of using whole spices and a specific set of uh, spices for a given region panchforan in bengal and you know a bunch of things in south india malabar etc and a local choice of fat right ghee in north india cotton seed oil in vidarbha mustard oil in the east and you know coconut and sesame oil in the south 
is going to extract at heat it's going to extract all the essential oils or the spices dissolve it in the oil and pretty much the entire flavor of your dish comes from that what you do at the start and what you might do reinforce at the end the interesting thing here is that the choice of fat and the choice of spices define the culinary flavor profile of a region right so if you start with uh, mustard oil and add panchpuran anything that comes after that no matter what it is whatever fancy ingredient it will taste bengali no matter what you do you can take a avial recipe just replace that coconut oil curry leaf thing they add at the end okay and add mustard oil and panchpuran as a bengali avial that's it right chachuri becomes well, closer to shukto in some sense ghonto actually ghonto me ghonto maybe yeah ghonto right yes exactly right yeah so basically that is what that is all it is right it is that you're fundamentally extracting regional flavor molecules from those spices getting it into the fat therefore it's not volatility bone so it's locked into the food that's interesting because it makes me think that in all this debate that we constantly put sort of pointless debate about you know what should be our national dish and should khichdi be the national more than a national dish maybe it's a or with the biryani but maybe actually more than a national dish it's actually there's a national cooking technique that joins us exactly right so i kind of point out so interesting thing right so i kind of speak about the pav bhaji the pav is portuguese the potato is of south american in origin the capsicum chilies and tomatoes came from mexico all of these were introduced by the portuguese the cabbage cauliflower carrot all of these were bought by the europeans and so on so other than the spices there is absolutely no indian ingredient in the pav bhaji and yet it is the most indian of dishes because i argue that indian food Indian is a meaningless adjective. What does Indian food mean? Bengali food very different from Gujarati food and very different from whatever it is, right? So I would actually say that the verb is more important. We Indianize things. The ingredients don't matter. You can give us anything you want. We will borrow left and right. We will borrow cooking, but we will Indianize it. For example, taking a pasta and adding a tadka to it is one of the most quintessentially Indianized ways of doing it. Actually, I would argue that it makes for a very delicious. Uh, pasta right right purists be damned right i mean i particularly enjoy annoying italians because they're very very particular about the purity of their food and so on and so and indians are, should not take their the food that seriously because we have so much of culinary diversity and indianization is a thing right i can take any dish from anywhere i can turn it into the flavor profile of something else so say there's a szechuan dosa in mumbai that's fantastic right i can have a chocolate samosa if i want no i don't know about a chocolate momo we've been having this <laughs> so i'm like okay i don't know but yeah well, some of those are social media but it's good to try uh, everything but yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. um all right so we've got the dal down now the for the our veggies and our yes. chicken by the way yes. did you just see the thing where they had a list the usual list of the most sort of what overrated dishes and aloo bengan suddenly made it in there Yeah, clearly they've never had a litti choka or a. I mean, I I find most subjective opinions about food on social media to be largely pointless because at the end of the day, every individual really cannot escape the fact that their opinions on food are shaped literally by what they grew up eating, and that's it. You can't escape that. Very tiny number of people who genuinely are adventurers and foodies, etc. Even then, when you say I like something and I don't like something, it's such a deeply subjective personal experience. right for example andhra people tamil people like spicy food uh, they like their food to be far more sour right and often north indians say this food is so sour no i like it exactly this way because the moment i go to north india the first thing i do is please bring me the lime juice and squeeze two things uh, to make it palatable to me so it is just that each 
region culturally will have a certain preference and that's just the way it is like for example many people don't like the pungency of mustard oil and likewise uh, people find the fact that uh, gujarati food is perceptibly sweet bengali food does add sugar in many dishes but not at the perceptible level right the sugar is there to amplify other flavors it's not there to stand out on its own right gujarati food no sweetness is very much a central ingredient of even a savory dish as well so it is just uh, what does it mean if it overrated essentially you're saying that i don't like it i don't understand why someone else does not like it that's all you're saying right and you're saying it's overrated you're effectively saying your taste is not good enough right so which i think is a very very silly way to think about food in general right so that's the overrated thing but yeah so coming back to vegetables right again i think uh, indians often don't realize that almost most of the vegetables in urban india eats were introduced in the last 150 years right potatoes first in bengal and you know so obviously which is why it finds itself into every many dishes in bengal particularly and uh, you can sort of see everything from in south india the carrots cabbage and beans french beans and all used to be called english vegetables they still village people you ask them they call english vegetables because they used to be sold to the english people when they were here a good way to find out whether it's a vegetable that has been around in india for a long time is to ask kids whether they like it or not if they don't like it there's a good chance it's probably a traditional vegetable right i don't it offends people but says yeah look at all the gourds which kid likes gourds okay a snake gourd your bitter gourd ridge gourd these are all old people diabetic patient vegetables right bottle <laughs> gourd watery bottle gourd yeah, yeah bindi i'll give you yeah it's fine you know if you deep fry it to like black yeah kids will eat it and so on but otherwise yeah iv gourd right uh, which i also enjoy now right but yeah so as a general rule i think one is to recognize that many of these vegetables have been introduced in the last uh, 150 years or so couple of other broad things is that as a general rule Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. People think there's a common conception that raw is better than cooked. No, that's not universally true. So, like with dal Many vegetables we extract fewer in nutrients if you consume them raw. Tomatoes and carrots are two examples. So a cooked tomato, cooked carrot, way more carotenoids and lycopene antioxidants than the raw version. At the same time, what is also true is that all cooking will destroy some micronutrients because heat does that. People don't have to overthink this. You have a meal, you have a salad, you have cooked stuff, you have uncooked stuff. you have a balanced meal and over a day you don't have to break your head about it right so don't have to overthink this right so people are like no 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 you must not uh, do you must never eat your carrot raw because you get 10 times more carotenoids yes that is true but yeah we what in a salad i don't want cooked carrot boss you know i'm fine i'm getting many other things and the other thing is that heat generally only destroys antioxidants enzymes and uh, water soluble vitamins b and c the most common things are vitamin b and c are the ones that are most useful for us which is why we sort of eat your your fresh leaves and you know you can squeeze vitamin c you squeeze lime on anything at the end the reason we squeeze lime at the end is so you don't lose some of the vitamin c and so on right uh, the funny thing there is that depending on your technique of cooking some techniques are better than others at least when it comes to vegetables right so boiling vegetables in water is is where you lose the most obviously deep frying is the worst because it's very high temperature okay deep frying then air frying then uh, your boiling steaming right because it's not water it's water vapor slower you lose very little okay what people don't realize you know what's better than steaming microwave ah 
the most underused appliance in our kitchen. We just heat leftovers. Yes, because microwave doesn't heat. What it does is that it only makes the water molecules inside the food vibrate. That's what the microwave does. And the vibrating water molecules, that's heat energy, right? That's heat, right? And so the vegetable literally cooks from the inside. So there is very little sustained application of heat from the outside and therefore greater destruction of some of these larger molecules like vitamin B and C and so on. Now, in terms of the vegetables, one of the big things, you know, we always told eat seasonal when we were kids. We ate seasonal, which is why all through monsoon, we were stuck with the bottle gourd and things that were the only things that were growing. And then winter comes and uh, cauliflower shows. When we were kids, I remember by September, we wouldn't want to touch another parval anymore because we had it in every (laughs) single form. Now people say, look, you get everything all year round. It doesn't matter. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's tricky. Again, because again, you go back to the economics and uh, India's... uh, scale and size. So in a sense that I think, I don't think our agriculture can, beyond for a few things like say mangoes, which even by the way, the mango season itself has extended than before and so on. Like in my living memory, I know tomatoes used to be seasonal back in the day. They're not anymore, right? Because they've become so essential. In fact, even things like bindi, which used to be a summer thing now are available all through the year, right? So as science and technology improves, I think, and storage techniques improve, we find the ability to grow more vegetables and make it available to more people. So I think what the complexity people miss is that we don't live in villages anymore. Idea of eating, if you're living in a village and you're eating what is local and what is seasonal, that's an idyllic utopian life. That's fine. But we live in cities with 34, 20, 25. Kolkata has like 25 million people and Delhi has like 35 million people, right? These dense places where food has to come from the outside, right? How can you possibly only eat seasonally if you're sitting practically in an Indian city? It's not possible. And the second thing I want point I want to make is that eating more vegetables all through the year is a hundred times better thing to do as a general practice, right? Than worrying about whether you're eating seasonal or not. You eat a bindi in winter when it is not necessarily seasonal, you have done good to your body. Is it practical to think about too much about organic? Yes. Also, again, it's very much a product of privileged thinking, right? On the one hand, the statement that, look, I think industrial agriculture needs to do much better. We are overusing pesticides. We are overusing fertilizers. We are depleting soils. No doubt about it, right? So this statement is true. What is also true is that organic agriculture today will not feed the planet is also true. We saw what happened in Sri Lanka and all of that. The second thing is, so this is the pure sustainability thing, meaning that you have, ideally, here's the thing. I would like for there to be more organic farming. I would like for industrial agriculture to use less pesticides. I'm not saying don't use any, I think that's an extreme view, right? I want them to reduce rather than say, you no, you must not use anything. You must only use cow dung and all of that. that is, I think is impractical, okay? I think that these things are true. Now, the second element is about the health, nutrition of these things. This, again, is not an easy question to answer because, one, unless you're the European Union, where you can regulate what defines organic in very precise terms. So I know what I'm getting, right, from something that is certified organic versus something that is not. And I have a price point and the market decides, am I buying the absolutely tasteless giant tomato or the ultra luscious summer tomato from that grew on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius and so on, right? So that's sort of like the, an entire spectrum that the market will decide, right? But in India, you know, any form of regulation is practically very hard to implement. And clearly, I think a lot of organic in India is not regulated at all. This is like the same thing about how people would say jaggery is unprocessed, but it's one of the most terribly processed in a very unregulated way. 
the only difference is sugar is processed in a regulated way jaggery is processed in an unregulated way yeah if you are making your own jaggery which is sticky and completely unprocessed fine go for it it will last very little it will smell funny and you may not like it okay but if for a moment you think that no chemicals were used in the manufacture of jaggery you are deluding yourself so i think in the context of organic again there are lots of dubious practices the people will use the bare minimum definition of that people will take neem leaves you go to a lab and synthesize the same pesticide that a factory could have produced okay and then use that and say it's organic plus chemicals are chemicals whether they came from a lab that used neem leaves or something else that's the second thing the third aspect is that all studies indicate that assuming you have truly high quality organic properly done organic etc the difference in the number of micronutrients that is there more in organic is not enough to exceed the what i said at the beginning just eat more vegetables just eating more vegetables whether they are organic or inorganic is a far better thing to do and worry than worry about whether they are organic uh, inorganic So if you are like someone who's a little bit pinched don't break your head you're not missing anything just eat vegetables you're fine wash your vegetables if you're worried about uh, pesticide residue and you know what if you're really worried about pesticide residue use the superhero baking soda <laughs> so can wash in baking soda right and it will absolutely remove all pesticide residues yeah before we leave vegetables one quick note on chilies yes given you know you have this thing about you know what it does when why do people like chilies it seems like a very masochistic thing to do all animals have this sort of uh, system particularly advanced animals you know mammals and vertebrates and those with central nervous systems and so on all have evolved a, a reward system that the brain uses as a recognition of the fact that many things that you have to do when you go about life are actually going to be painful hunting and finding and killing and fighting all of that stuff is painful right giving birth all of this stuff is like painful right so the brain has evolved a mechanism to in a sense also reward you for sitting through pain there is always an endorphin rush once pain subsides okay the entire history of opioids is basically the synthesis of molecules that are similar to the molecules that our brain produces to give us that pleasure after pain and so the same thing happens with chilies as per chili said see actual pain can do other actual damage right i mean right there could be other things that you damage and but then this is just a a chalo tikel here's a reward for all the suffering you went through right but uh, chili the molecule is only tricking you it is not even actual pain right molecule tricked your temperature receptor it is triggering to the brain oh my god you this guy swallowed something high temperature right put out the fire send more blood make him sweat make the body cool down right and body says oh man that's a burn this is like looks like a second degree burn let me give that guy a little bit of pleasure also right see see a brain is a ai trapped in a dark box it has no way of what's going on it's only through the signals that it gets that it's seeing the world the brain doesn't see anything the brain doesn't feel anything right it's trapped in a large box and it's getting signals and it has to react to that right and so it has to project forward that this is potentially a burn so let me prepare the pleasure circuit and give him that pleasure right and then we kind of realize then after a while it's like yeah no this was like crying wolf so i learned from that so it's a win win right no actual physical damage happened to you and you got the pleasure so chilies are the closest thing that you can get without taking heroin or morphine or marijuana or any of these other things which again also calls addictive uh, other dangerous behaviors and so on right to be fair even spicy food is addictive in that sense but not dangerously addictive like sugar and as a south indian i particularly have a higher tolerance to chilies <laughs> than uh, than most other people but you can build tolerance see if you kind of know that discomfort that you feel is really a phantom feeling 
that yes it will subside and by the way you can drink milk or ice cream or any fat and protein based concoction to wash off that more effectively than water not coca cola not coca cola that won't help right you want to do something that not something acidic you want to do something that is uh, like milk or uh, ice cream is best actually ideally yeah because ice cream is also low temperature it is a temperature sensor so the ice cream will turn it off right away mm-hmm. right so as i said you know people indians i'll tell you what they go when they go abroad right to they get some order some dish that is like phenomenally bland right only salt and pepper can only rescue so much what do indians do bring me the tabasco sauce right <laughs> and that is more sour than hot to be honest right it's just a lot of vinegar and you know i it just makes it unpalatably sour sometimes i'm like you just get used to a side of chilies just ask the kitchen to give you a green chili or a jalapeno or a whole jalapeno once you get used to it and you're not like oh my god oh my god it's like you know my mouth is on fire and so on but chilies are so delicious once you learn to appreciate and ignore the heat and united states has some of the tastiest chilies on the planet because you know mexico that's where chilies came from right indian chilies are terrible tasting their chilies are fantastic tasting so just eat your bland food by biting into chilies like rajasthani peasants do and I, trust me i mean it is amazing far better than adding tabasco sauce the chicken we've got to the chicken dish at first i'm going to ask you so what is this thing about oh the broiler chicken is entirely fat and tasteless yeah. and factory yes. produced one must only eat country chicken so i think again perspective in 1900 a field of rice produced a certain number of kilograms of rice in 2023 that same field produces 10 times more the average size of every one of your fruits every one of your vegetables has become 2 3 times bigger than it was 100 years ago boss all your food has gotten bigger you know why science and you know why science well mr fritz haber invented uh, your art fertilizer and that basically hockey stick population growth because of mr fritz haber right and how are you going to feed all of that uh, population you have to make your vegetables bigger you have to make them pest resistant you have to grow more of it in the same amount of land so everything in the last 100 years has become bigger and this applies to chicken too right and we've managed to make the chickens bigger with the same techniques we use for plants it's just simple artificial selection we didn't sit and modify any genes that's the amazing thing people think these are gmo chickens they are not this is simple artificial selection growing a bunch of chicken finding the fattest largest rooster and the fattest largest hen and making them mate and then continuing to do that over many many generations and experimenting with that is how these chicken companies now have these genetic stock that are actually quite large as a factor some of the plants and vegetables have grown by a larger size than the chicken so i don't think people should be worried about that but there is a taste difference there very much is yeah, obviously right so the taste difference actually comes from several other things by the way there's a taste difference even in the vegetables yeah so see in a pre pesticide artisanal agricultural era the plants were all subject to pests the plant produces flavonoids and defense chemicals to fight those pests those defense chemicals are what we consider flavor okay so that is why an organic tomato done the right way has a little bit more stronger flavor than a tomato grown with pesticides right and so in the context of animals the funda is about how much is the animal actually one what is the diet of the animal so the more diverse things it's a free roaming see go to an indian village every small household will have a bunch of chickens running around they are eating agricultural ways they are eating worms they are eating a very diverse diet and so the country chicken the taste is going to be come from the fact that it's eating a diverse diet whereas your broiler chicken is probably eating like one grain and one few things soya and things that are going to make it put on weight sooner rather than you know that's the whole goal and it's a limited number of things right so the second thing is that the free roaming chicken is also exercising its muscles it's flapping around so the breast gets exercise it's walking so the thighs get exercise so in general why the chicken breast is uh, generally easier to because the chicken doesn't fly much right i mean and so it's less exercise so that that meat actually is not lean meat I mean, in the sense that it is, it's not tough 
the kind of tough meat that you kind of see when your muscles attach to the bones that are actually constantly moving. So a broiler chicken barely walks, right? It's in a cage and, you know, pretty much all its life. So that muscle, the leg muscles are not as, uh, it actually cooks quicker. So your broiler chicken cooks faster than your country. Country chicken takes twice amount of time to cook and so on. And it also has that gamey flavor because the chicken eats a ton of things. FYI, people buying country chicken sitting inside cities, you have no idea what the chicken is eating. It's eating trash. So, in fact, some of the, the gamey flavor you get in mutton in urban environments is because the goat is eating trash. Goats eat far more trash than cows do. So, that's why the, your urban mutton has a stronger flavor. In a way, the moment you go to the countryside, the mutton is just amazing tasting. It does not have that uh, funky uh, indole smell that you get from uh, mutton uh, that is from goats roaming around street cities and eating political posters off the walls. Just talking about red me- uh, meat, what is this thing like many people who come from abroad tell me that uh, they won't eat pork in India because there's something in the pot which is going to go right to the brain. No, so there's a say that see, this is usual white people considering the third world to be dangerous and filled with parasites and so on. So again, yeah, it's fair to say that your average butcher shop uh, in India is not as clean as, say, a butcher shop in, in Europe. The supply chain is not exactly quite clean and uh, pork particularly is, uh, can harbor these, there's a brain parasite. Again, the problem with social media is that is the sort of like the, just like how news is the organized collection and dissemination of rare events. Social media is basically the disorganized amplification of extremely rare events. Most people eating pork don't have a brain parasite. One person having it, that is viral news for the next few weeks, right? And then, you know, people react to that and then it's self-fulfilling prophecy. Everybody's amplifying the same thing. Some influencer said something stupid, then every news media reported on it and now that is indexed by Google. That becomes now official news. Don't we overcook our meat enough anyway that we're pretty... Right. So again, problem is that, see, Indians generally like to overcook meat because of all of these risks. They don't. They don't like overcooked meat. And therefore, you run the risk that some larva might actually survive. And these are exceedingly low risks. I would urge these people worried about pork in India that you're far more likely to be run over by a vehicle on an Indian street than dying from a parasite in your brain from eating pork here. Well, now that we're talking about chicken, let me ask you something we talked about before we started this conversation, where you mentioned that one of the big things is that in the West, our diet tends to be protein heavy and protein centric rather. India, it's carb centric. So how difficult is it to get enough protein in India? Man, way harder than we think it is because one is that a lot of people... You use way, it's a pun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's <laughs> yes way harder therefore way protein yes that should be the title of your uh, the podcast right the standard default diet is very carb heavy second thing people tend to overcount they tend to give dal oh dal protein ho gaya right yogurt i had protein ho gaya one glass of milk protein ho gaya so i think you know there is that overcounting knowledge problem third is the misinformation ecosystem around whey protein is uh, will cause you kidney damage too much protein is bad for you so all a combination of things is what is actually causing the problem i feel to be honest i think the see on the one hand you have a diabetes epidemic right which again is coming from the carbs contributing factor is the carb centric meal right if you Fix your protein thing, I would actually argue that it's going to have a measurable impact on your diabetes epidemic, right? Because protein signals satiety much sooner. So, think about the Indian meal, right? Let's assume you make no changes. No, no, no. I'm vegetarian. Max, I may have a paneer with some 2-3 cubes of paneer. I may have a side of the heat. This is where most of my protein and dal is there, right? How do we eat it? We eat the rice and then we put the dal and eat it along with the rice, right? Now, weird thing is that you take the salad, you eat it fully first. You take the cup of dal, you eat the dal fully first. Then you get to the rice. 
even this will have a measurable impact on your health. Because what you're doing is that you're getting the fiber inside first, which is indigestible. It will form a mesh. Your gut bacteria get to work. That's one thing, right? And that mesh, as you're eating remaining things, the rush of glucose through the walls of your intestine is slowed down the moment you eat fiber. So eat your fiber first. And next thing you're eating is dal. Dal is mostly resistant starch and protein. Both of these hard to digest and you're getting protein. Let's assume that see, most people don't want to change their diet drastically, right? I'm just assuming, saying that, look, even if you do the small sustainable changes like changing the sequence, the moment you eat the dal fully first, right? Moment protein gets into your system. Yeah, by the way, your intestine is counting, no? It'll signal satiety when it reaches, yeah, I've got enough, right? So therefore, what's happening is that uh, the moment you get any kind of amount of protein inside, the, your body will start to signal satiety sooner. And by the time you get to rice, you will now be like, no, I can make do with half the portion of this rice. So all I'm saying is that sometimes, forget about increasing protein, which is a separate issue altogether. You can get a lot of benefits simply by changing the order of things you eat. But again, but that goes against your culture. No, no, no. This is the way we eat, right? By the way, you know, mixing ghee into your rice is also will help you reduce the sugar spikes because fat also reduces the sugar. But again, but you're adding more calories. It's a separate issue altogether. The second thing is that you're going to, de you're definitely overcounting protein. Okay. Cup of boiled dal, not much. Three, four grams at max. Right? Five grams at max. One egg is six grams. A slab of uh, chicken curry and all won't have much because unless you eat like four pieces, you're not getting much. Okay. Right, again, you're really, you might get like 10, 12 grams if you are the man of the house taking all the big pieces and all of that, right? Otherwise, fish curry, very little. A side of fried fish, depending on the fish, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe like 7, 8 grams and so on, right? Not much, right? So that's why your bodybuilders and uh, these guys are like, oh, boss, I'm going to eat the most convenient thing is chicken breast. I will cook it, keep it in the fridge and daily take two pieces of it and eat it for breakfast, lunch and dinner. So that way I get like at least 30 grams from those two pieces, 15 grams each, like one solid piece of breast, again, the American size breast, the big one, not the desi chota wala, right? Paneer, 70% of the calories in paneer are fat. 30% is protein. Yes, it has protein, like cheese has protein. But most of the calories are fat and saturated fat at that, right? So you have to keep that in mind. So if you're eating like a paneer dish and then you're eating like tons of ghee in your rice, etc., yeah, fine. I mean, if you're a Haryanvi Punjabi person, maybe you're genetically predisposed to be okay with that. Not going to work for your Bengali South Indian people. Okay? So you have to really think hard, right? So that's why you also see, you get that skinny fat uh, syndrome a lot more in Bengal and, and in this part of the world, right? Oh, yeah. That, so, yeah, yeah, yeah that's belly yeah. and there's that. Belly, but no no, no muscle. No muscle. Yeah. So which is the point? Is this what the lack of sufficient protein does? If you're yes. not looking to become a bodybuilder, is yes. it just about muscle tone? Muscle tone is one. This is, by the way, after the fact that it is anyway stressing your pancreas and uh, you are likely getting pre-diabetic and, and, and so on. But then there is a genetic, strong genetic component to that. Look, to be honest, a lot of people eat a lot of carbs and don't get diabetes. Okay. Right? So, it again, it's really about that. But yes, it is pretty certain 20-30% of the Indian population is probably diabetic or pre-diabetic. Right? And probably more. I won't be surprised. Right? So, in that sense, yeah. So, that's the second outcome is the fact that, look, see, protein is essential. First and foremost, the first thing your body is going to use protein is to uh, repair cells. All organs, that's the primary thing. Brain tissue, everything is all made of protein. Right? So, that is first. After that, enough amino acids are left over, then it will start adding more muscle. Provided. Provided. So your body is a chindi CFO trying to optimize costs. Okay. It is not going to invest in putting on muscle unless there is evidence that you are beating your muscle to death every day. Like you're an agricultural laborer, right? Or you're like doing lumberjack work or you're working out in the gym one hour a day, right? And 
working out to the gym also another problem most people don't do enough to reach that point of i can't do one more set very few people do that that is the signal that is telling your body next time when you rebuild that damaged muscle thoda jyada de dena because i think uh, this guy is you know repeatedly damaging it and provided you get enough protein and the body says acha i have enough excess budget ab thoda muscle badayenge right that is how hard it is and if you're a woman remarkably hard your evolutionary designed only to put on fat not muscle and in fact in the gym most of the people are not going to that point but at the same time they are increasing the number of eggs or whatever they are having yeah I, yes and so that's your body is going to turn that into fat and worse to turn that into fat and uh, use it as glucose and all of that the uric acid that is going to cause you gout and other problems kidney problems and all of that and so all of that stuff uh, gets into other problems if you over consume protein but actually you're not uh, working your muscles hard enough and actually forget that you're not probably spending as many calories right see and again one more thing people think exercise will help them lose weight no if you're spending 2500 calories a day is what you need right let's say you go to the gym and exercise and you burn 3 400 calories your body will adjust many other things so that your total expenditure is still 2500 mm. so that's why people who work out at the gym are athletes have small low heart rates your, your body is finely tuned machine that is forever optimizing because it's not a great system where you're burning 2500 calories one day and 1000 calories the other day your body is designed to say no i am going to even it and i'm going to keep this backup of fat so that this hunter gatherer is not going to find any food in winter so he has enough to live off his fat that's what we are optimized for and we've gotten from that to the world we are and the abundance and all of that before evolution can catch up so we still have that same metabolism right we really need evolution to catch up sorry you know no i don't think i don't climate change will kill us before evolution can catch up with <laughs> that is entirely unfortunate too yes. so what is according to you like a balanced indian diet it's very hard to say but to be honest i would actually say first and foremost a diet is only as good as it is sustainable so which is why some of these very crazy you know avocado keto I mean really if it's sustainable you're rich enough yeah fine right for most people the only sustainable diet is still eating what they like eating changing the macros so that you're progressively slowly you can't overnight increase you will feel just feel stuffed i mean I, i'm trying to get my mother to eat more protein and she's like two teaspoons of whey protein is like stuffing her is it i can't eat anything else yes that's exactly what protein will do and she doesn't like that sensation right and so it is there you have to be gradual you have to slowly increase your protein uptake and slowly reduce your carb intake so that you eventually get to the point where you're like boss this thali business no wait hold on i now get to the point where i ask the thali guy to say double all my vegetables quarter of the rice right and give me extra paneer i will order side paneer if it's a vegetarian dish or give me a side of uh, fried chicken or fried fish so i am then mentally forever prioritizing protein it's just being conscious and beyond all of that uh, safely please consume a supplement provided you work out and all you know we talked a little bit of on the microwave yes. but with an induction cooker what should you i mean obviously you say that there is a muscle memory in cooking from gas which you have to recalibrate for induction cooker oh yes yes you do have to recalibrate yes but what do you need to watch out for for an induction cooker and what makes life easier i have burnt onions all the oh, time yes. mostly all because the time. Yes. because yes. i don't know what those bloody numbers mean 3 yeah. like it goes 12 10 5 yes and i'm like i don't know what those mean the problem is every induction cooker will sometimes have like different numbers what i found one is that i think the the usable heuristic there is usually wattage so mostly so there will be some way to change the display to number of watts okay? usually it goes up to a top of 2000 
typically 1800 or 2000 that's the amount total amount of watts at full blast that's the amount of power that it is taking and you can then change the setting from 60 watts to 100 watts to 300 generally remember that 500 to 600 is what is the cooking range where things are getting cooked like oil saute and etc if you want to heat the oil keep it at 1000 quickly right but then bring it down to 600 because then you will burn the things 600 500 600 is that sort of range but when you're cooking a gravy and at some point you're like you know what i'm going to leave it let it cook for a while don't leave it at 500 600 that's too hot so you want to get it down to 300 and if you want to just once the cooking is done you just want to keep it warm then 60 watts or 50 watts or whatever is the lowest setting and by the way if it's just boiling water set it to 2000 water boils in half the amount of time that you would take it takes significantly less energy than a flame. And I even calculated that it's even cheaper, even if you count electricity costs. Way cheaper. It's very efficient. Because again, the magic of an induction cooker is that it's actually not transferring heat from the surface at all, right? It's actually in electromagnetic induction because the magnetized material like steel. So that's why, you, by the way, induction bottom has to be steel. So a lot of the stuff that you end up burning is because you're using a vessel whose bottom is not thick enough. So you need things that are relatively thick. It's like you need to use slightly higher quality steel for this, right? And the magnetic field created by the coil inside the induction cooker will induce current because of uh, Maxwell's sort of uh, and so on. And it will induce that uh, eddy currents inside the vessel. And those currents, they run into resistance of the material and that heats up the pan. So the pan heats itself like microwave, right? It's, it's heating itself. So that's why the surface of your vessel, your stove is not hot at all. Actually, the heat there is literally the heat of the pan going back into the ceramic surface and nothing else, right? That's why it won't burn your hand and so on. So this is the one thing you need to remember. The heat transfer is very, very fast. The second thing is that the temperature of the bottom surface is far hotter than when you place a pan on a fire and the fire is heating from below and then that is causing the molecules of the metal to then get excited and then slowly transfer the heat to the rest of the pan. And some materials like heat and uh, steel and cast iron don't transfer heat very evenly. Copper and aluminium do it very evenly and quickly. So that's why it, it uh, heats more quickly and so on. Whereas in this, it is currents inside the, the pan. So the heating mechanics are entirely different and it heats up very quickly because current travel, it's like very, very quickly, right? So that is why the temperature is much higher. So that is why, again, you have to be very, very, when you're doing dry cooking on, on induction. Gravy cooking is fine because there's water. Okay? Even there, you find that when you put spices and you add a little bit of water to get a little bit of that water, you'll find that it, the bottom gets stuck to the pan very, very quickly. Yeah, so I think also use a, use a non-stick with a induction bottom. Finally, Krishna, so we, you know, since the book is called Masala Lab, and it's lab implies that if you follow these heuristics, if you follow these steps, you can more or less predictably produce a certain result. I wanted to just end by asking, given all that knowledge, what has been your biggest cooking disaster? Oh man, there have been several, as always. I think I don't think you learn if you haven't had enough disasters, which means that you haven't experimented. So a lot of cooking is really about one, doing things enough number of times so that it becomes second nature to you. But in the process of doing it many times, you are going to fail several times. Um, I think uh, probably the uh, the worst one would be there's a Parsi dish. I think Tarkari Nubafat for some days. Many of these Parsi dishes have like the Gujarati names, mm. right? Uh, and uh, like, as with all Parsi dishes, it always includes an egg, right? So it always features egg. And that's one of the things I like about Parsi food. It's a, it's a good way, actually. So, you know, people who want to in increase your protein, find Parsi, Parsi dishes. They all have egg, right? And the egg has to be cooked in a very specific way so that it doesn't end up being like, like it still needs to be mixed with the vegetable and sort of added in just towards the end so that it's still in that sort of semi-cooked, but, you know, state, but still bacteria being killed and all of that. 
and the individual vegetables themselves all may all have to be timed in such a way that they are each of them that the carrots might take a little bit more time than mm. you know something else right? the spinach and all of that right and i think i says confidently you know you know what i'm going to save time otherwise it's way too much work. and i said no no you know fuck i'm going i know potato and carrot i'll add first then i will add the other things then i will add the vegetables that cook quickly etc etc but it was for a party and i ended up adding the egg pretty early, early as well and the entire thing was rubber by the time uh, <laughs> I knew the egg was becoming rubber but the potato had not cooked so I said okay so I said oh man I said you know I paid so much attention to sequencing the vegetables and I just completely forgot about the egg and I should have yeah so that was one of my uh, worst disasters <laughs> we'll have to leave it at that krishna shok thank you so much for joining us great fun krishna shok is the author of masala lab the science of indian cooking Let us know what's cooking with you wherever you get your podcasts from. Find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Express Podcasts. Thanks as always for listening. This show was produced by Shashank Bhargav and edited and mixed by Suresh Pawar. This is Sandeep Roy on Express Audio.